X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Wednesday, March 10th. Today, back in the day, on March 9th, 1562, the city of Naples banned kissing in public. Throughout history, rulers have created some pretty eyebrow-raising laws in order to control their subjects' behavior. However, the Naples ban on kissing wasn't about public displays of affection. Instead, the leaders in Naples were trying to keep their subjects safe from the spread of disease. In 1562, a second plague was sweeping through Europe, and these plagues really put our situation into perspective. The first plague in the 1300s killed half the population of Europe and half the population of Asia in just four years. But even after, epidemics cropped up regularly for hundreds of years. So it's no wonder the rulers of Naples tried a lot of different things to prevent the spread of disease. But making kissing in public punishable by death might have been taking it a little too far. Oddly enough, this was only one of history's kissing bans. In 1910, France banned kissing at railway stations because it could cause train delays. And in 1982, the Iranian parliament added kissing for pleasure as a list of outlawed moral offenses. As late as 2003, Moscow considered making kissing in public punishable by jail time. That time, the citizens fought back, protesting by defiantly kissing each other out in the streets. On today's show, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with State Representative Julie Fahey. X-ray. But first up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. New numbers show a drop in state unemployment. Oregon released unemployment data on Tuesday. It showed that the state's unemployment had gone down by 6.2% in January. This is still higher than pre-pandemic unemployment rates. The last few months of 2020 also saw steady drops in overall unemployment, meaning more and more Oregonians became employed during that time. Oregon's peak pandemic unemployment was in April of 2020 with the rate of 13.2 percent. Non-farm payroll jobs are responsible for the employment gains even as industries remain below pre-pandemic employment levels. Those include retail, leisure, hospitality, and private education. According to the Associated Press, there was only one industry to add jobs in Oregon in the past 12 months. That was transportation, warehousing, and utilities, which added 4,100 jobs. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 517 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. There were five new deaths in the state. This is the highest daily case count we've had in the past two weeks. Before this, the daily average for the week was 292 cases per day. The Oregon Health Authority now expects to have enough vaccines for 70% of adult Oregonians by April 21st. This estimate comes days after President Biden announced he expected to have enough doses for every adult in the country by the end of May. Some Oregonians are still hesitant to receive the vaccine. Therefore, the health authorities' new projections could mean that every adult Oregonian who actually wants a dose will be able to receive one by late April. Joanne Hardesty commented on the false hit-and-run allegation made against her. Someone claimed that Commissioner Joanne Hardesty had rear-ended them last Wednesday evening in East Portland. They said Hardesty had then fled the scene. 
The next day, Commissioner Hardesty denied any involvement during a virtual press conference. She added that her car has been out of commission for months due to needed repairs. She has since been cleared as a suspect in the incident. It seems that Hardesty's main concern is with the way in which the rumor was disseminated. She told the scanner, quote, It is a story that really reflects being black in America. And now interactions with police can go really wrong really quickly. This is also about an illegal leak with false allegations that were given first to right-wing media types so that it could be spread. She added, quote, I'm fortunate that I am a black Portlander that can actually call a press conference to try to clear my name. Apparently, Hardesty first heard about the allegations from a news reporter. This was before she was contacted by the police. A group called the Coalition to Save Portland had a live Facebook chat to discuss the incident report very soon after it reached the press. Due to the timing of the spread of information, Hardesty said she suspects the information had been leaked from within the police bureau to the group. In her statement to the scanner, Hardesty said, quote, We need an outside investigator to really look at the role white supremacist extremist groups play within the Portland Police Bureau. There's currently an internal investigation being conducted regarding the handling of the false allegation. Mayor Wheeler says increased gun violence in Portland has become a crisis. A 42-year-old man was fatally shot yesterday in North Portland's Dawson Park. People reported hearing four gunshots in the afternoon. An investigation into the circumstances of the shooting is underway. This marks Portland's 15th death from gun violence in 2021. A police spokesperson said yesterday that the city has seen an unprecedented number of shootings since June. Mayor Ted Wheeler addressed reporters in the park that same day. He said gun violence is the city's top public safety concern. He added that the uptick in shootings puts us in a state of emergency, whether or not there is an official emergency declaration. A security fence around Portland's Hatfield Courthouse is coming down. The fence has been up for eight months. It was originally put up to create distance between the building and racial justice protesters. The fence was rented by the federal government and has been estimated to cost about $200,000 for the month it was up. The fence's purpose was explained in a Federal Protective Service memo months ago. It said they required a fence at least eight feet high with reinforced steel mesh panels designed to prevent potential climbers and withstand vehicle collisions. Yesterday, the Federal Protective Service confirmed that there was no longer a reason to keep the fence up. The Oregonian reported that there were $2.3 million in protest-related damages to federal buildings in Portland. This is largely cleaning costs. And finally, some good news. Oregonians will soon be able to get vaccinated at Walmart and Bymart. The state will allocate some of its first Johnson & Johnson vaccine doses to these new locations. This will help distribute vaccines to more poor and rural individuals who may not be able to travel to a mass vaccination site. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine only requires a single dose, and it can be kept at regular refrigeration temperatures. Vaccinations are already available through some pharmacies at Safeway, Costco, and Walgreens. Walmart and Bymart will be added to that list as soon as this weekend. Half of Oregon's first shipment of Johnson & Johnson doses will go to Walmart and Bymart. The rest will be distributed to a variety of locations, including the Portland Airport drive through Clinic. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray.
Next up, we have Representative Julie Fahey with X-Ray's DJ Ambush. Representative Fahey, chair of the House Committee on Housing, covers housing issues and how they are showing up in the legislative session. Representative Julie Fahey is a long-term advocate for fair and equal housing opportunities in Oregon. Currently, she is the chair of the House of Representatives Committee on Housing on Housing. Representative Fahey is here with us today to speak with us about housing reform efforts at the state capitol. Representative Fahey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. How are you this morning? I'm doing all right. We are um, in the middle of the legislative session, so uh, hearing bills and and getting testimony from folks and really thinking about what, in the housing committee, thinking about what kinds of bills we want to move forward around. Hmm tenant protections and increasing the housing supply and um, addressing the housing crisis. Excellent. Excellent. In December 2020, the legislature established a relief fund for landlords whose renters couldn't pay, couldn't make payments last year, and you extended the eviction moratorium. Can you give us an update on the landlord relief fund? How effective has it been? Sure. So the landlord um, fund launched a couple of weeks ago. Um, the the state agency Oregon Housing and Community Services that's running it um, is accepting applications online and so the first round of funding um, which is 50 million dollars applications will be open on that through this Friday so um, how it works is landlords can apply on behalf of all of their tenants who have unpaid rent and so um, they they apply the the agency will use a scoring system to decide who gets funded first mm. with the smallest landlords and those that have the most unpaid rent um, being prioritized for payment first. Um, they will get 80% of the back rent that they're owed and they'll uh, be required to forgive the remaining 20% wow. of their tenants. So that would make the, the tenants com- bring the tenants completely whole. Um, there will be more rounds of funding. We allocated in December about $150 million total. So. Um, I'm really, it looks like there's a significant demand for the program. Um, I don't have the figures as of today, but as of a couple of days ago, over 900 landlords had already applied. Wow. That is awesome. Wow. Yeah. And there's also tenant-based assistance. So this program is really, in, a, in the normal sort of pre-pandemic world, how an assistance gets out is that the tenant applies for it through various social, social service agencies. But the need was just so great during the pandemic that we needed a different way to get relief to people. And so we created this landlord fund, which we hope is a more efficient way to get money out the door. Rather than if I'm a landlord and I have 10 tenants who are behind on rent, um, I can submit one application for all of those tenants as opposed to each tenant um, applying individually. And, you know, it's a it's a burden on, on tenants to um, apply for that assistance while they might be navigating unemployment or other social safety nets too. Right. All right. Uh, what kind of bills need to get passed to keep housing accessible in the long term, in your opinion? Well, I really um, group it into a number of different categories. So w- one is um, increasing the supply and the production of housing. So um, we are, all of the analysis shows that Oregon is you know, more than 100,000 housing units short just to meet the need of um, mm. our current residents, let alone the people who continue to move here. So we really do have to focus on building more housing. And, and what that means is 
a you know investment in affordable housing production, specifically subsidized housing for low-income Oregonians. It means changes to zoning and regulations that will help the private market um, build more housing units. So Oregon was the first state in the country to uh, essentially repeal single-family zoning, which limited the types of housing that could be built. Um, We did that in 2019. So before then, on the vast majority of land that was zoned for residential use in Oregon, um, it was illegal to build anything other than a single-family home. Mm. So we, we made that change. And have done things around incentivizing accessory dwelling units, which are like tiny homes in backyards or, you know, garage garage apartments. Um, and we have a number of things this session that will um, that will help increase production of, of housing, including a substantial number of investments. There's also um, in diff- other categories are sort of increasing homeownership and tenant protections um, and addressing the needs of the unhoused. So on homeownership, we have we have a few bills that will make it easier for people to own middle housing. So, um, you know, a du- two sides of a duplex, for example. Uh, we, there are some bills in the legislature that um, increase the, the amount of down payment assistance for first-time home buyers, and that will help cro- close the um, the gap in homeownership levels between BIPOC families and white families. So investments in technical assistance and down payment assistance for BIPOC families that want to buy homes. Um, On tenant protections, we really do still need to focus on the needs of tenants during the unhoused Mm -hmm. or or during the pandemic. Um, You know, we have the eviction moratorium in place, as you said, but um, there that is set to end in July. And so there is a bill that will um, think about the, the needs of tenants as we enter the COVID recovery phase. So making it easier to expunge evictions that do happen, um, implementing a grace period after the moratorium for people to pay the back rent they own or they owe, that sort of thing. Um, and then in terms of the unhoused, we have a, we have a couple of bills in my committee that are that will make it um, easier for cities to site homeless shelters um, and that provide a substantial amount of funding for cities to build shelters and navigation centers. So that's a, a major investment we're hoping to make this session. You mentioned a, a, a phrase I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, middle housing. Yes. What is that? I could talk about middle housing all day. <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. Um, so middle housing is um, things like duplexes where you've got two units in one building, triplexes, quadplexes, mm. um, townhomes, cottage clusters, that sort of thing. And it's the kind of housing that was very common Um during World War II and, and the era before it. So, you know, our cities were this patchwork of different types of housing, a garage unit or um, an attic apartment. Um, and then after World War II, we really, the patterns of development started to be more um, focused on single-family homes. So suburban development um, and, and residential zoning uh, was a big way that that was enforced. So there were... Uh, you know, as I said, vast majorities of the, the land zoned for residential use, you could only build a single family home and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, I think it's important to co- talk about that in the context of um, discriminatory housing policies. So you it used to be that you could have um, restrictive, racially restrictive covenants in your deeds that say only white people can live in this home. Mm-hmm. Um, that became illegal. 
And instead, uh, there were, you know, single family zoning was a way that was used to keep neighborhoods segregated by race and by class. Um, so Berkeley, for example, in California, it essentially invented single family zoning um, to keep their neighborhoods white and segregated. And just last week, they voted to repeal it. So mm. I think there's an increasing awareness that things like single family zoning, um, if the if the only kind of housing you can build is you know a large single family home, that makes housing less accessible for people in specific neighborhoods, Absolutely. for lower income people and for people of color. And so uh, removing that type of zoning allows you to build more and different kinds of housing. So um, I'm someone who, when my husband and I first wanted to buy a home, of course we wanted a single family home um, with a big yard for our dog that was close to our jobs and the kinds of restaurants and the things that we wanted to do. But we couldn't afford that when we were um, first time home buyers. So right. we built, we bought a, a one unit in a fourplex building. Um, and that was where we lived for a number of years and until we built equity and could, um, you know, could buy a single family home. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it really does op open up more kinds of housing opportunities for people if you have different kinds of housing. All right. For anyone just joining us, this is Ambush and Morgan. We are speaking with representative Julie Fahey. Um, Right now in Oregon, there are at least 1.5 million unused bedrooms in Portland. It seems like a lot of those unused rooms are in low-cost, high-rent, luxury apartments that developers have put up in the last five to ten years. How do we address those vacancies? Well, that's a challenging that's a challenging question. So <laughs> I think there are um, there's a number of things that we could do. I I have a bill this session that I'm not sure exactly gets in that at that, but it is about, um, so there is a certain type of regulation that many cities have that limits the number of unrelated people that can live together in a home. So for example, in Eugene, where I live, um, they say no more than five unrelated people can live together in one home. Hmm. And that, that type of regulation is independent of the size of the home. So that applies in a studio apartment, and it applies in a large six-bedroom home. And um, there are the, those regulations date back many years um, and, you know, were, were a part of sort of the extreme regulation of, uh, of housing that I think, you know, I don't think that these limits are a major contributor to our housing crisis. But if we have the ability, if we can remove those limits, um, and more fully utilize the current the housing stock that we do have, as you said, that those empty bedrooms that mm -hmm. are um, being unused. I think that could help ease demand just a little bit while we focus on increasing supply. So the bill I have would is very simple. It would basically say local government can't limit the number of unrelated people that can live together in that way. Um, it doesn't touch anything related to you know health and safety, life and safety regulations. You can still regulate occupancy by square footage and the other kinds of health and safety things that um, are important, but just that extra layer of you can't have more than 500 related people um, living together. And, mm. you know, in Eugene, what that means is you can't have three unmarried couples live together to save expenses. So um, I don't think this is going to solve the housing crisis, but I think it's a very tiny thing um, that we can do that will, will help some people um, better reflect the ways that people choose to live together now. And, uh, and which bill is this? Um, it's House Bill 2583, and it had a public hearing a few weeks ago. Okay. Uh, what does the opposition to this bill look like? 
You know, I think there's some, uh, there's not really strong opposition to it. Um, there's been some hesitancy by this, the city to, um, you know, just want to make sure that it, that it doesn't interfere with their ability to regulate the life and safety things like fire code and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're working to get the technical language there. Right. But I don't, I don't see strong opposition to it. Um, you know, the hearing went really well. Um, committee members re- reacted positively. So, um, I'm hoping to, to put that bill to a vote in the next few weeks in the committee. That is awesome. So, so necessary. Absolutely. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's, we, we already were in a housing crisis before the pandemic and the pandemic just made things worse. So it has been, um, you know, a real honor to do this work to try and try and make housing more affordable for, for my constituents and everyone in Oregon. I'm sorry. I have one more question. Uh, how, how can we as everyday citizens get involved? Well, one of the things that's really exciting about this legislative session is that um, we have introduced all kinds of new ways for people to get involved and submit testimony. So um, if you if there's a bill in the legislature that you like or that you don't like, um, it's very easy to testify remotely, either by video or by phone. Um, and so there's a there's a website um, online, the Oregon Legislative Information Services website. Um, Google Oregon legislature and every every bill in the legislature has its own page um, and there will be instructions about how to submit testimony when it's scheduled for you can you can subscribe to follow that bill um, by email and there's instructions available to testify remotely so that's definitely one thing to do but honestly you know I think I, I love it when people get involved in the legislature I love it when people testify um, and it's really important for people to be involved at the local level. Um, we find a lot of the, the decisions around housing, um, you know, and, and the things that people are, they're sort of not sexy things, that, the decisions that happen, right? <laughs> like around parking minimums and minimum lot sizes yeah. and different zoning things. That Those things all have a very real impact on the amount of housing that gets built and the type of housing that gets built and the affordability of that housing. And those are all made at the local level, so city cities in particular. Portland has done a great job. Portland's, um, you know, recent changes to zoning and some of those things are amazing. They they should be a model for cities across the state and the country. So, y'all have done a great job up there. Um, but I think making sure for folks that aren't in Portland or even those who are, you know, making sure that you're keeping the pressure on your city council to, mm. um, okay. you know, really focus on building more and diverse types of housing is incredibly important. There it is. You've heard it. (laughs) Get involved, people. Stay involved. We're doing a good job. Thank you so much. Also, get involved in your neighborhood associations. I should have said that, too. Um, (laughs) You know, neighborhood associations are, uh, they they vary, at least in Eugene. My neighborhood association is amazing, um, and they're they're very pro-housing. Uh, but sometimes they, they are a source of opposition to specific development. So getting involved in those at that very hyper-local level is also important. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Representative Fahey. Thanks. Thanks to Representative Fahey for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Also, a big thanks to Miranda Selinger, our lead writer for today's show. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. 
team's going to take a couple days off for a spring break. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. X-Ray.